The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle, rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could join us. And we are excited to have three guests today talking about a very important water issue that we really haven't covered on Go Green Radio. In all of our time uh, being on the air the last six years, we have not really covered desalination. And now it's becoming a, a more prevalent topic, something that's being discussed in the state of California and in other places around the world as places are beginning to experience drought. And this may become something that is um, perpetual. Um, If climate change scientists and what they predict is even close to correct, uh, we may be experiencing drought in all kinds of places where desalination may seem like the answer. But today we're going to be talking with three of the leaders from the California Coastkeeper Alliance, and they're going to be talking to us about some of the um, some of the things that we need to be considering before we go headstrong into desalination as a silver bullet for our drought issues. Today we're joined by Sarah Amanzada, Sean Bothwell, and Ricky Russell, all from the California Coastkeeper Alliance. Welcome to Go Green Radio, guys. Glad that you could be with us. Thank you. Excited Sarah, to be here. Awesome. Well, we're excited to have you and excited about the, the work that you guys have been doing. Um, I recently ran across a white paper that you all issued along with some other organizations, and that's kind of the basis for the questions that I'm going to be asking you guys today. But Sarah, I want to start with you. You're the executive director of the California Coastkeeper Alliance, and I'd like to have you tell our listeners about your organization, what you do, and then give us uh, some idea of some of the additional partners and other organizations that you worked with in order to develop this white paper that we're going to be talking about today. Absolutely. Well, first, I just want to thank you for having us. This is an incredibly important topic, and even more so, as you highlighted, in light of the drought and increased pressure that we're all feeling to identify some sustainable water supplies and some water security. Um, Our organization is a 15-year-old network of local waterkeeper groups throughout California, from San Diego all the way up to Humboldt. And in turn, California Coastkeeper Alliance is a member of the International Waterkeeper Alliance, which is a global network of water advocates um, around the world. So that's the basic structure of our organization. California Coastkeeper Alliance um, is the voice for clean water in Sacramento, and we represent all of our local groups um, in statewide policymaking processes and in the legislature. So we really depend on our local groups to let us know what's happening in the community in the local ecosystems, and how we can make sure that our statewide policies and laws really reflect what's best for California communities and ecosystems. Mm-hmm. Now, who did you guys work with? I know that when I looked at the bottom of this white paper, there were a whole long string of organizations who were involved in putting together this white paper that's called California's Drought and Seawater Desalination. Talk to us about who you're partnered with. 
Yeah, that's right. We did work with a really diverse coalition. We worked with some of the larger groups like Natural Resources Defense Council and Surfrider Foundation, and of course also with many of our local waterkeeper organizations such as Orange County Coastkeeper. So really a broad coalition of groups that has been tracking ocean desalination facilities, the proposed ones throughout the coast, for many years now, but it's all really coming to a head. Right. And and I know, you know, Sean and Ricky, I want to get you guys on here. You can tell me who's going to take a shot at this question, but I'd like to give our listeners some background on California's historic drought. Before we talk about desalination and all those issues, you know, for East Coasters who get floods, who get snowmageddons, California's water system is kind of an enigma to them. They don't get how complicated our water system is. We're heavily reliant upon snow versus rainfall. We don't have as much water storage as people might think. And for a state of 37 million people, that can cause problems even in non-drought years. But one of you, if you would, give us an overview of how California's water system works, even during normal conditions. All right. Well, first I'll just say that I think our our water here is an enigma to most people. Um, (laughs) And secondly, I don't know that we really do have normal conditions. Our um, amount of water varies considerably from year to year. And if you look historically over the last 20 years, you know, we're, we're constantly either in a very wet year or in a very dry year. And periods of drought, so the one that we're in now, are usually then punctuated by periods of very wet weather. So, so from year to year, it's, it's hard to really assess what is normal. Mm-hmm. And then secondly, we vary considerably um, throughout the large state of California. The northern California conditions are drastically different from um, southern California conditions. So the amount of rainfalls in the north can exceed, for instance, 80 inches a year, whereas, you know, down in San Diego, they may receive about 12 inches per year. So I think the thing to remember for folks is that, um, you know, the word normal probably doesn't really apply for for California, and increasingly so um, given climate change, even, you know, looking historically at patterns of what we would experience from year to year and in different regions, we're really seeing some some variation and some unusual patterns. And so I would throw normal out the window is probably the best bet. <laughs> I think a lot of people feel that way about California, even if we're not talking about water. <laughs> we are not normal. True. But but True. even just the way that we, we move water around the state, I mean, um, you know, it takes an incredible amount of electricity to move water from, you know, the northern parts of the state to the southern parts of the state. Um, you know, in as much as, you know, a lot of Californians are into locally grown food and local this and local that, um, not a lot of water is necessary necessarily local. In many communities, um, a good deal of the water, especially when you talk about Southern California, comes from places that are quite far away, and it takes a lot to move the water to the recipients. Um, How would you rate California's freshwater management at this point? Um, Well, you know, because we have this natural variation. We have put in place a really massive infrastructure that, as you mentioned, is very energy intensive and really moves water, you know, very far distances across the state. So so none of our urban centers are really getting their water locally, um, even though, as you said, I think we do like to pride ourselves in sort of homegrown local solutions. So there's a really massive um, physical infrastructure of tunnels and pipes that is carrying water to various areas. And along with that physical infrastructure, we have a really um, complex 
regulatory infrastructure that regulates, you know, who gets how much water when. And, and the system, I would say, both physically and um, from a regulatory perspective, is, is really broken. It doesn't reflect um, equitable water use. You know, there are some water users and sectors, such as the agricultural sector, that gets 80% of our, our water. And although, of course, we love our farmers, we love our, our fresh Californian food, you know, that's a real problem. We have various ecosystems throughout California in real collapse, and it, it comes up on the news a lot, you know, looking at Delta smelt and these salmon populations and, and the debate that happens between um, fish and farmers. And, you know, the, the underlying issue is that the water just really isn't being distributed um, equitably, and every year, you know, we fall short of promised water that we have said we will deliver. So, so I would really say that our our system is broken and and really needs some significant reform. And and I actually think that the drought provides a really good opportunity to have that conversation and to make some of those reforms. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, um, you know, many many folks are looking at ocean desal as sort of a silver bullet solution. And it's just not that easy. There are really some deeper um, policy reforms that we need to make and really think through how we're managing our groundwater basins, how we're managing flows in our rivers, and, and really it, it takes a lot more than, than just building an ocean desalination plant. Well, we don't, even you know, outside of California, even on a larger national scale, we don't have a great track record for thinking through public policy really well. I mean, even when you look at, um, you know, uh, a variety of technologies that we got all excited about for energy or uh, for moving water, you know, the waste products of, of those processes weren't uh, fleshed out before we started creating the waste to begin with. Nuclear waste is one, you know, the wastewater with fracking is another and, you know, uh, you know, looking at desalination as a silver bullet, like, hey, we're right next to the ocean. There's plenty of water. Let's just, you know, gluttonously look at, you know, ways to bring that into our fresh water system without really thinking through um, how we're using what we've already got is pretty part and parcel with the way that we do public policy in many areas of both the state and, and the federal government. I'm wondering who's behind this this interest in pushing for desalination in California. Is it a private industry thing looking to capitalize on the drought or is it driven by citizen groups that are worried about water supply? I mean, where is this interest coming from? So um, I like think, to, I, yeah, I think I'll turn that over to Sean. I can sure. answer that, Joel. Yeah. Um, really, California's public isn't asking for desalination. I think for the most part, they understand that there are cheaper and more environmentally friendly alternatives out there um, to address California's needs. The real push for desal is coming from um, industry groups that would profit from desal, obviously, and then the local water districts, mostly in Southern California, who really want to get out from under um, Northern California water. They're very dependent on Northern California water, and they see that as a potential threat in the future, um, and they see desal as the silver bullet. And mm-hmm. the problem is, like you mentioned, with public processes, you know, these desal lobbyists, they, they spend all day doing nothing but pushing for desal. And so anytime we're in Sacramento, they're there. They're at the governor's office. They're in the legislature's um, hallways getting votes to pass mm-hmm. bills. They're at the state water board. And we, we really need our elected officials to step back and see that there are other water supplies that provide multiple benefits, additional benefits that desal doesn't really do. I mean, desal is really a one-trick pony. It only provides 
the multiple benefit of water reliability. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if you could tell us in like a minute or so, just generally speaking, how desalination works. I mean, what exactly are we doing with a, a plant like that? Sure. So desal is really just the industrial process of removing salts from water. Um, and the most common way to do that these days is through a process called reverse osmosis, which requires you to take a large volume of ocean water and you pass it through a very finely poured membrane filter. And what that does is it separates out the, the fresh water from the salt. And then the facility discharges that double, the double salt back into the ocean. Um, you know, desal is used around the world for a variety of purposes. Most of it's for drinking water supplies. But some people don't realize that industrial processes, um, such as making microchips or, or you know, advanced technology, requires really high-quality water. And so they use desal for that. Um, it's also been used for emergency water at refugees, refugee camps, or military operations. Mm-hmm. But here in California, you know, we're mostly looking at it for drinking water supplies. And most of the proposals have ranged from anywhere from Baja, California, all the way up to the Bay Area. Gotcha. Well, we're going to take a quick commercial break. But when we come back, we're going to dig much more deeply into some of the risks associated with desalination plants. So don't go away, folks. There's much more Go Green Radio right after this. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. All round the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus, creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. Rachel Carson in The Sea Around Us said, All at last. Return to the sea, to Oceanus, the ocean river, like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. Moyer's Environmental Dialogues with Dr. Rob Moyer offers lively dialogue and revealing narrative inquiry into how individuals are overcoming obstacles and creating a greener and blue planet Earth. Tune in Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. 
Welcome back to Go Green Radio. Just in case you've only now tuned in, let me catch you up. We're talking about desalination. Specifically, we're talking about it in response to California's drought. Um, There's some folks that are pushing for desalination plants as a silver bullet solution to California's drought at this point. And I, I came across just recently a white paper that's entitled Proceed with Caution. California's drought and seawater desalination. And it was put together by a a collaborative of several different organizations. And today on the show, we have leaders from the California Coastkeeper Alliance who were part of that uh, collaboration to put this paper together. At the end of the paper, there was a striking sentence that kind of blew me away. Uh, This is what I read. Although seawater desalination has been utilized for many years, the impacts of these plants' operations have not been thoroughly monitored using baseline data and ongoing evaluation. There are significant knowledge gaps about the impacts of the technology. Now, Sean, I'd like for you to talk to us about some of the risks associated with desalination plants. And before, you know, California goes, you know, off the deep end and starts siting a bunch of these plants, what are some of the risks that we should be thinking about? Yeah, so I think the sentence you read um, does really highlight, you know, kind of the precautionary approach that we, we don't know exactly the true impacts of desal plants. And in California or in the United States, really, there's only been one major desal plant that's been um, developed and built, and that's in Tampa Bay, Florida. And it was created really before anyone started putting in regulations for the intake of, of seawater. And so, getting back to the risks associated, there are so many risks that um, I try to use only the the main three, so that the general public doesn't get lost with how many there are. And so there's really three strikes in my mind. First mm-hmm. strike is when a desal plant intakes seawater, um, it uses this open ocean intake, which you can consider it as like a big straw just in the ocean, and it pulls in millions, hundreds of millions of gallons of water a day. And with that water comes fish, um, larvae, microorganisms, um, plankton, all types of marine life that's necessary to you know, achieve the food web and keep a sustainable marine life. And obviously when it's brought into the desal facility, the filters filter it out and it kills them. Um, the second strike is, from, is climate change. The desal facilities are extremely energy intensive. They, when they come online, will be the most um, energy intensive type of water supply in the country. And, you know, in California, we've really been trying to be a leader on climate change. We passed our AB32, our cap and trade program, and we're really looking to mitigate climate change and greenhouse gases, not perpetuate them as desal facilities will. Mm-hmm. And then finally, the third strike is this, this discharge of, um, by, of salty byproduct. And so when the facility is done filtering out the salt from the fresh water, it discharges the salt back into the ocean, which is twice as salty. And, you know, a lot of people would think, what's the harm in discharging salt water into the ocean? But when the water is twice as salty as natural, um, the natural environment, what it'll do is it's heavy and it sinks to the bottom of the floor of the seafloor, and it, it can harm um, sea life down there, and particularly crab and squid species, which is one of California's two highest um, fisheries in California. Well, we've spent a lot of energy and money to preserve the coastline of California, and it's not just you know the sandy beaches, it's the ecosystems as well. Um, you know, even if, you know, you're really not into marine life and you could care less about the lives of, of fish 
are there statewide standards for desalination plants in California? So no, actually, there are currently no statewide standards for desal in California. You know, ocean desal is really like the Wild West out here. We, there's, no there's no regulations that apply statewide, and it really depends on region to region and from project proponent to proponent of what is the best available site, what's the best design, what's the best technology for desal facilities to use to minimize environmental impacts. So over the last three years, California Coastkeeper Alliance has been working with the state board to develop um, statewide regulations to do just that, to, to explain for both the intake and the discharge of, of seawater what the best technology is, where these facilities should be sited to minimize um, impacts to the marine environment, and then what's the best design to accommodate um, technologies such as subsurface intakes. Well, and when we're talking about, you know, one of the risks that you mentioned was this intense energy use. Um, and and I'm guessing that the, the, the plants wouldn't necessarily all be run on solar or wind, although that might be one alternative um, if we're going to smartly site these plants if we decide that they're necessary. But, um, you know, there's such a thing as the water energy nexus that we talk about, not just in California, but in other places as well, in terms of, you know, how much water it takes to create our energy and how much energy it takes to move our water. How could these plants kind of disrupt our energy flow if we were to bring these online? I mean, would they probably be in places where we're already using quite a bit of energy to begin with. Are the utilities in California ready for that much of a, of a new load? So yeah, that's a good question. Um, I, to be honest, I don't think there's been enough study done to determine if there is enough load. Um, currently, California is transitioning their power plants along the coast um, in, so that they aren't doing exactly what's happening with desal of sucking in seawater to use it for their cooling towers. Mm -hmm. uh, back in 2010, the state board passed statewide regulations that told um, power companies that they could no longer use open ocean intakes to cool their generators. And so because of that, they're all um, repowering using these dry cooling towers. But while they're doing that, um, you know, our, our load is, is in flux and putting these additional desal facilities could jeopardize that. Mm -hmm. I'm sure. Now, let's talk about some of the alternatives to desalination. How do they compare to desalination by cost? Talk us through some of the alternatives and then give us some idea of, of how they compare by, uh, you know, apples to apples cost, you know, with a desalination plant that would produce the same amount of water. Sure. So there's quite a few um, alternatives for ocean desalination that are really cheaper. They're environmentally more friendly and they're they prepare California to be more sustainable for our uncertain water future. Um, and California Coastkeeper Alliance likes to advocate for the, these main three supply options, which is water conservation, stormwater capture, and water recycling, which compared to desal are cents to the dollar of their price. Mm -hmm. So for conservation, you know, a lot of people think about low flow toilets or, or showers, but there's a lot more that can be done um, Removing your turf lawn, especially in Southern California, is a big way to conserve water and replace that with drought-tolerant um, plants. You can, you know, fix pipes and leaks and replace, you know, dishwashers and washing machines with more efficient um, technology. Stormwater capture is this n new trend 
that's happening throughout the nation of treating stormwater as a resource and trying to capture it on site and using it as a, as a water supply. Mm-hmm. You know, in, in the past history, what flood management agencies did was they tried to get stormwater into a drain and out to the ocean as soon as possible because they wanted to avoid flooding. Well, we realized when you did that, that it picks up a lot of pollutants. Stormwater pollution is one of the number, is the number one um, pollutant in California. And it's, it's full of trash, metals, and other bacteria that is really harmful to you know, public health, beachgoers, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And so by employing stormwater capture, you're not only um, providing a, an additional water supply by um, capturing it on site and using it either percolating into the ground or you can have a rain barrel that you use for your own gardening, um, but it, it reduces stormwater pollution. And then finally, water recycling. Uh, water recycling is a unique one because it actually uses, for advanced water recycling, it uses the same technology that desal does. Mm-hmm. It, it uses the same reverse osmosis filters, and it creates the same very high-quality water that desal does. And if you compare something like water recycling to desal, um, desalination costs about $1,900 to $3,000 per acre foot. Now, you compare that, and that's the most expensive water you can get in California. Mm-hmm. You compare that to water recycling, um, the reports come out stating that water recycling can, be, can cost anywhere from $300 to $1,300 per acre foot. So almost wow. half the cost of desal using the same technology and getting the same product in the end. Wow. And, and this is something that, you know, th- that's going on across the state of California, across the U.S. It's already in place in many areas, but um, in some places where maybe they don't have a water recycling system, um, how does it compare in terms of capital cost to to put in a system like that compared to putting in a desal plant? I mean, uh, are they commiserate? Uh, what, what are your What are your findings on that? They they can for the just overall capital cost they're fairly similar. Um, water recycling plants have been shown to be cheaper though than desal just for the capital cost of constructing the facility themselves. Mm-hmm. Now, besides being less costly than desalination, what are some of the other benefits to implementing these alternatives to desalination? Talk us through some of those benefits. Okay, so. Again, we really see ocean desal as a one-trick pony. It, the only thing it provides Californians is the benefit of reliability. And I would even argue that it doesn't do that, because if you look at other facilities in Australia, in Israel, in even Tampa Bay, ocean desal isn't that reliable. They, they have to break down often to, for maintenance and cleaning, and they never – it's such a new technology that they don't even work to the capacity that they're expected to. But these other alternatives, conservation, stormwater capture, water recycling, they each provide multiple benefits to Californians. Um, Again, take stormwater capture, for example. Um, Besides just increasing water supply, it prevents flooding, it restores habitat, it improves the water quality so that you don't get the stormwater runoff. It recharges groundwater, which in California is a very big deal because of um, the drought. Our groundwater levels have really dropped, which causes a whole suite of other issues. And it also provides just open space at a fraction of the cost, really, of, of desal. Mm-hmm. 
Absolutely. We're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, I want to talk a little bit more about some of the the benefits of, of these alternatives. And then I want to talk about the, the nitty-gritty of the technology that we're talking about. So if people learn that there's a potential desalination plant project being uh, discussed in their community, that they'll understand exactly what we're talking about and what impact that might have on their local environment. So don't go away, folks. There's much more Go Green Radio right after this. News, opinion, your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787, 1-866-472-5787, voiceamerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. So glad that you could all join us today. Um, today we're going through the nitty-gritty of desalination. Uh, we've got California in the midst of a of an historic drought. There are other parts of the country in the midst of a drought. Um, and, you know, it seems like, wow, here we are in a big blue planet, all kinds of salt water around us. Maybe that's just the way that we can solve all of our problems, just desalinate. Uh, that ocean water and then we don't have to worry about droughts. But we're talking in more detail today about um, what exactly is involved with desalination plants and some of the things that our public policymakers, as you know, we maybe even help them to become educated, should be thinking about before we dive into the deep end when, it talk, when we're talking about desalination plants. Um, Sean Bothwell is talking to us. He's from the California Coastkeeper Alliance. Sean, talk to us about a little bit more in detail about open ocean intakes versus subsurface intakes and how at this point subsurface intakes at desalination plants would be considered the best technology that's available. Sure. So open ocean intakes versus subsurface intakes is really 
a ongoing debate. It's really past history using old type of technology that was created in the 60s, these big open ocean intakes, like I said, big straw into the ocean, um, versus these new technologies that are coming online, um, which are subsurface intakes. Uh, but first I wanted to just provide some context for California. I, I touched on it earlier about these 2010 regulations, which now prohibit power plants from using open ocean intakes to cool their generators. And, you know, the reason they did this, billions of marine mammals, fish, sea turtles, they were all dying annually um, because of these huge open ocean pipes. And so while we were passing these regulations, desal proponents saw this as an opportunity, and so they decided to site all their facilities next to these power plants, thinking that they could use the same water that the power plants were using after they were done. Um, they continued to do this while they saw the writing on the wall that these regulations were going to pass, they weren't going to be allowed. So now mm -hmm. they're prohibited, but desal facilities are continuing to move forward, asking that they use the same exact pipes that are already outlawed under the 2010 regulations. So that's wow. really the battle we see is whether they're going to still be allowed to use those open ocean intakes or if they should use the best available technology, which is required under the law. And mm -hmm. I don't think there's an argument that subsurface intakes are the best available. And so, again, using the straw analogy, just consider it a straw under the subsea, under the subsea floor mm -hmm. where there's this pipe under the sandy beach and it sucks in water through the, the sandy bottom um, and gets water that way. And the reason it's the best available technology is that process doesn't kill any fish. Because of the velocity that um, those in, subsurface intakes use to get the water, it's not enough to pull in fish or hold them to the sandy bottom where they would die. They can swim mm -hmm. away. So there's zero mortality in marine life with subsurface intakes. And well, also they have the additional benefit of the sandy bottom filters out the seawater. And what that mm -hmm. does is it, it, it's like a natural pretreatment process so that the desal facility doesn't have to do that treatment process. And this, well, when you say that, I think that you're talking about some of the things that, um, you know, we discuss in other industrial processes, which is, chemical use. I mean, if you don't have as much algae and bacteria and all kinds of, you know, stuff coming in from the ocean, there's less of that to treat, correct? That's right. There's less chemicals in the treatment process, but also because it's cleaner, um, there's less energy required during the reverse osmosis process. And so cleaner water means less energy used, which means cheaper water for the ratepayers. So there's been studies done that show that yes, the capital cost up front to do subsurface intakes is more expensive than using the ones obviously already constructed, but in the lifetime cycle of the project, the subsurface are actually cheaper because it saves you so much money on the back end with the energy demands. Mm -hmm. Now, what should the public and public policymakers know about the discharge from desalination plants. I mean, this is not some innocuous substance. I mean, as you mentioned, you know, putting extra doubly salty water back into seawater is not without impact. But besides the brine and the salt um, that's coming out of a desalination plant, what else are we talking about? And, and if, if local residents, again, if they know that a plant is being proposed to be sited in their area, what should they know about what's going to happen to their local environment um, as a result of the discharge from a desalination plant? Yeah, that's right. Um, the discharge is not as controversial as the intake 
portion, but it can be just as dangerous to marine life as the, the intake portion of the desal facility. And as we talked about, you know, the salty discharge does displace um, benthic communities, but there are also other toxins in there um, that are used in the pretreatment process that are also discharged back into the ocean. Magnanese, for example, is one. Um, there's been actual people that have tried to use desal water, I believe in Israel, to water their lawns, and it completely um, burnt them. They all died because the desalinated water um, just doesn't work well with something like a turf lawn. Um, there's also an issue of, so in especially in Southern California, we have these harmful algae blooms that pop up every once in a while. Mm-hmm. And these blooms are filled with toxins. And when a desal facility, you know, they'll say that they won't use desal when there's these blooms out there because it messes up with the filters. But mm-hmm. there's no monitoring. There's no way to tell that if there's the harmful algae blooms out there. And they'll intake the water. And there's studies that show that when they discharge those harmful algae blooms back out into the water, the toxins divide up, they become, they accumulate, and um, the bloom on the back end is even worse than it was beforehand. Well, and I would imagine that if they're, they are allowed to use open ocean intakes and, and thus they're using chemicals to treat the water as it comes through the desalination plant, that the discharge would also include some of these chemicals, which, you know, that's... That's always, uh, you know, a concern for folks, I'm sure. Um, one of the things that I, I found interesting in the white paper that we've been talking about um, was a, a portion of the white paper that dealt with some of the case studies in desalination plants that serve as sort of a cautionary tale for those who might view desalination as that silver bullet uh, to drought. What can we learn from plants that were built in, say, Santa Barbara or some of the plants that were built in Australia? Yeah, so as Sarah said at the beginning, you know, we really see this drought as an opportunity for us to improve our water management system. And to do that, I think we need to look at some of our past mistakes. And so that's why um, this section on the cautionary tale was in our uh, report, because it's so educational as to what we should not be doing now, why we should not be rushing into desal because of this drought. And so the two examples we gave was Australia, um, and Santa Barbara. And so Santa Barbara in the late 80s, there was a drought in California. And Santa Barbara isn't on the state water project, so they, you know, they have their own unique water issues. They decided to build a desal facility. And once the drought went away, um, they, they decided that the water to keep running the plant was just too expensive. You know, the plant itself cost $34 million to build. And the cost of continuing to run it was just too much. So they mothballed it. They sold away all their parts and they closed it down. And so now with this new drought, Santa Barbara is reconsidering opening the facility, um, which will cost an additional $20 million because, again, they sold all their parts. They need to reinvest all the infrastructure. This thing's been gone for 20 years. Um, And so that's just an example of if you build a plant for a drought situation, it's just not worth it to run it long term. Mm -hmm. Now in Australia, Australia's is even a bit larger issue. Um, back in the early 2000s, there was, a large, there was a large drought. It actually started in the 1990s and went into the 2000s. And Australia reacted by deciding to build six separate desal facilities in the country. This cost $9.2 billion to construct these. 
And it took a long time. Desal facilities take a very long time to build. The one in Carlsbad, for example, has been trying to get its, all its permits and be constructed um, since 2000. So it's been 14 years um, to build this one plant. So you can imagine how long it took in Australia. And by the time they got these facilities up and running, um, the drought had eased. They, they had some good rain where they had enough water now. And they, they also invested in all these cheaper alternatives that I've already discussed. And it really made desal plants impractical at that point. So mm-hmm. today, when you look at Australia, four out of those six plants no longer are running. They're, they're idle. And so we, we use those two examples to just explain to California and California's government that we can't rush to build these desal facilities just because the governor signed a proclamation that we are in an emergency drought. It will take too long for them to be built. It's too expensive. And there are other alternatives out there that are better answers and quicker answers, quite frankly. We can, we can implement water recycling and conservation much faster than we can diesel and, again, at much cheaper cost. I want to bring on Ricky Russell, um, who's with your organization as well. Uh, He's going to talk to us about some of the recommendations that your organization and your partner organizations have. Ricky, talk to us about the first recommendation that you have, which is immediately implementing urban water efficiency measures. What would that look like? Yeah, I'd be happy to. So as Sarah illustrated really clearly at the top of the call, California water system is, is beyond broken. The upside of that is we have so many opportunities for reform and to get us on a sustainable path towards water that desal is just the last option that we really need to consider. Mm -hmm. Just talking about conservation alone, these other countries that we've brought up as, as examples use a fraction of the water that Californians use. For example, the average California household uses about 200 gallons a day. In comparison, Israel, which has extensive desal, they use only about 84 gallons a day, Australia 80, and Spain only 76. So mm-hmm. we would need to get to conservation first. And just to kind of bring up some of the portfolios of the opportunities we have for conservation, we could start with fixing leaks. We have a very old system. Some, some parts of the state can really lose up to 30% of their water due to leaks. I don't know if you saw the uh, giant UCLA pipe burst that yeah. happened uh, a few days ago, but that's mm-hmm. kind of uh, indicative of the, of the water infrastructure we depend on. Just losing thousands of gallons, not the thin air, but under the ground. And mm-hmm. so investing in pipes and updating pipes alone will really bring us a lot of new water. Right. And so some of the money that we would be investing in desalination plants could really be put to good use um, by taking care of our, you know, our infrastructure um, and increasing the efficiency. We talk a lot about that in, in energy use as well and how much um, energy we lose in transmission lines. Um, and if we could improve our efficiency there, we wouldn't have to produce as much electricity to begin with, which is part of part of the solution. We have to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we'll talk about uh, some more of the recommendations that are outlined in this white paper. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. Yeah! 
If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. Just before the break, we were talking with Ricky Russell, who's with the California Coastkeeper Alliance, and we were talking about some of the recommendations that their organization and many others have outlined um, for California state uh, public policymakers and the public in California to think about and to implement before we get to the point where we feel like we've got to put in a, a string of high-energy usage desalination plants across the coast. Um, Ricky, we were talking about recommendations. We had talked about urban water efficiency measures. I'm not sure if you got a chance to finish what you wanted to say about that one. Was there more that you wanted to talk about with what could be done in terms of, of that? Well, yeah, I think a, a, um, a quick way to put it is lawns, leaks, and laundry. In those three <laughs> areas, the, um, the gains that we could make from conservation – for a fraction of the price, it's practically like constructing a desal plant, but without the economic and ecological harms. Already throughout California, there's a lot of programs like in L.A. and Long Beach, they call them cash for grass, where considering that most residential water use is outdoor watering, they rebate you to install native landscaping or landscaping that doesn't use so much water as our traditional lawns and puts in something a little bit more appropriate and actually beneficial in terms of native habitat. Mm-hmm. Appliances, I think a great idea, as we recommend in our white paper, um, that would, I'm sure people who sell appliances would be on board with this, is how about a sales tax break for appliances that conserve water? That's a, that's a win-win situation for conservation for retailers and for homes that will be using less water. So Mm -hmm. all sorts of different portfolios, ways we can conserve water, depending on the context, depending on different situations, it'll really get us the the water we need that we already have instead of turning to ocean diesel. 
Right. Instead of wasting what we've got, you know, I think Benjamin Franklin said it best when he wrote it in Poor Richard's Almanac a couple hundred years ago, waste not, want not. And if we waste less of, of, of the fresh water we've already got, we won't uh, need to create so much. Um, you know, the report also recommends that low impact development techniques be implemented, including green infrastructure and rainwater capture. Um, those things should be prioritized. Pri- prioritize, excuse me. And I'm wondering exactly how this would be accomplished because development, and I, it can't just be California. I know in other areas of the country, it's complicated. I mean, it's a mixture of local, state, uh, policymakers and things. And I'm wondering when we're talking about low impact development, how exactly in the real world that would be accomplished? Are we talking about local water districts working in in conjunction with local planning commissions? Ricky, help us understand what this concept would look like in a real-world application. Yeah, okay. So for your listeners that don't have a complete understanding of the term, low-impact development refers to a catch-all term of construction adaptations and practices that seek to mimic the natural hydrological process. So this means retrofitting your lawn or your driveway so rainwater returns to the soil rather than running off the concrete as pollution or installing native landscaping to filter that rainwater while providing habitat for birds and small animals, and even in some instances capturing water to be used on site. So the great thing about low-impact development is that its standards and practices can be adjusted from context to context, from single-family homes to office parks, all the way up to large-scale river restoration. It really can fit in just about any scenario. It's in use in Seattle where... It's practically a rainforest, and it's really catching on in L.A., which is a semi-arid zone. A, a really neat example, I think, of low-impact development is the parking lot at the Los Angeles Zoo. They've used a mix of engineering tricks and native landscaping to treat and capture rainwater and make sure that it's not entering the ocean carrying motor oil and all those harmful pollutants that normally rainwater would catch and take off into the ocean. Mm-hmm. So just as the uses of low-impact development are really diverse and, and can be really widespread, the way they can be facilitated and placed into the ground are really unique and, and diverse as well. I think mm-hmm. like the LA Zoo example, public institutions and public buildings have an important role to play to demonstrate low-impact development because it's not a common term. It's kind of, it's, people aren't sure if they're referring to things that are being built or if they're practices when in reality it's, it's, a, it's a combination of, it's a portfolio of practices and design standards and rain barrels that, that at the end of the day, we're just trying to mimic what is the natural rain cycle. Mm-hmm. Well, the report also recommends prioritizing water recycling projects. And in some areas, that's worked very well. In other areas, um, they call that toilet to tap, which has really turned the public off (laughs) when it comes to using recycled water. I'd like for you to talk to us about the Orange County success story in making this type of a project work well, both from a, a water quality standpoint, but also from a public relations perspective as well. Yeah, so unfortunately, toilet to tap is is a term that probably put back the adaptation, um, the adoption of recycled water by about a decade, because the largest hurdles 
to the use of recycled water, our public perception and put in the political acceptance of of recycled water. I like how Orange County refers to it as glacial water because when you look at the when you look at the final product, the only thing on earth that they find as clean and as pure is glacial water. The reality is all water on earth is continually recycled through a hydrological process. And recycled water like in Orange County only accelerates this Nat- these natural processes of separation, filtration, and sanitation. So what was once occurring over thousands of years, Orange County accelerates in a rapid industrial process that mimics these quote-unquote natural processes. Mm-hmm. And so what Orange County has had a lot of success is demonstrating that not only are they getting a great bang for their buck at a fraction of the price of desal or even importing water from somewhere like the Colorado River, but it's cleaner, it's, it's healthy, it's to be used in your schools it, with the proven technology. It's a great way to make use of the resource that we already have at our hands, and it's really only getting over this ick factor. It's the largest remaining obstacle behind the, the wider spread adoption of recycled water. Mm-hmm. Well, the final recommendation, and we have a couple minutes left, and I want to get to this because I think this is something that is not generally understood understood by the by the public, is this idea of sustainably managing our groundwater. Talk to us a little bit about what you mean by that. Yeah, unfortunately, groundwater, because it's not something we see, is something that we tend to misuse, which is really a shame because it's one of California's most important water resources. Combined, California has over 850 million acre-feet of groundwater. To put this in perspective, it would take almost 200 Shasta reservoirs, the state's largest reservoir, to equal that amount of storage. An advantage of groundwater is, unlike the distribution of rainfall, California has aquifers rather evenly distributed around the state. So while it may not rain much in Los Angeles, the region has really impressive reservoirs right under their feet. But, but they're not course, being well managed, are they? No, unfortunately, because it's a resource site unseen, California has treated it like the real gift from nature it is. Mm-hmm. So what Cal- the California Coastkeeper Alliance, in combination with our local water keepers, we're trying to advocate that we really should turn to these resources we already have and treat them better. Mm-hmm. Um, What's important about groundwater is if it's not replenished properly, it's not a finite resource. We can have overdraft, which yep. is – and and we don't have to look far in uh, current events to see situations like in India and other places where there's overdraft of aquifers that's uh, adversely impacting their agriculture and uh, and drinking water. And so it it is uh, a gift from nature that we really need to stop uh, wasting and to look at um, as as a real precious resource. Thank you so much for joining us today on Go Green Radio, guys. So glad that you could have us. Glad that Sarah could join us at the top of the hour. Folks, we've got so much more to talk about. And we're going to be here same time, same place next week with more Go Green Radio. So until then, have a wonderful week and do something in your life to go green.
Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week.